quitethethingmedia.com. The network, oh, without constraints. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Long Term Memory. As always, my name is Jack. And my name is Colin. Jack, how are you today? Yeah, I'm super. Well, I'm not super. I'm in a little bit of a bad mood, to be perfectly honest with you, because we're doing two-pack today, and I'm very much disappointed that we couldn't take a deep dive into uh, military deception and history, because in the last six months, I became a middle-aged man, and that's all that I'm listening to in the podcasting land, is sort of history pod. So I was looking forward to doing that, and I think you cheated to get two-pack. Uh, I don't know if that's particularly true. Come you on. put a you put a poll on Twitter, yes, from the wrong term memory um, Twitter page. Uh-huh. Um, you didn't think to vote for the thing you wanted from all the other Twitter accounts that we run. So from the player four five six account, from the quite the thing media account, various burner accounts that I might have, I did go and vote for Tupac. Um, I then put a tweet out from my page saying, "Please vote for Tupac." Well, that, that, is it. that was the thing that annoyed me, because I was trying to be fair, and with about an hour left, it was pretty close, so I put out a tweet saying, look, Jack wants this, Colin wants this, there's 50 minutes left, please vote, and then you just went, uh, vote for Tupac, and you've got fucking 8,000 followers, so of course you won, you prick. Like, I, be, I bet we got about 120 votes in that last 50 minutes. I would say that 110 of them don't even listen to this fucking show. <laughs> probably. Yeah, probably. Um, but listen, I took a risk with that because it would be very, very on-brand and very Twittery for <laughs> Twitter to fuck me and go against what I was asking them to do. Um, and I did, I was fully aware of that in my actions, but I thought, you know what, I don't want to talk about fucking boring military history shit, so I'm going to try and make this happen. Um, just delaying the inevitable... But because uh, Ross Hutton has written Military Deception for us, and we're going to cover it at some point, and while we're talking about people <laughs> writing stuff for us, which is fucking brilliant, shout out to Paul McCabe. Um, he has basically done all the legwork for Tupac. Uh, we asked for people to uh, write articles for us that we put on wrongtermemory.com and a few people sort of put their hands up and said we'll do it. Simon Halloran as well has written about Morrissey. He got no fucking votes near enough, which is fair enough. But we will cover him as well at some point, Colin. So Paul yeah, McCain, I would, massive I would have, out, yeah. I would have prepared to talk about Morrissey, but I knew that was an losing battle and it would have backfired on Twitter, which is why I went for a two-pack. But yes, thank you very much for writing the article. It was great. And um, that wasn't a one-time offer, by the way. If anybody else wants to write a blog or write an essay for us, we're quite happy to host it and we're quite happy to make shows about them. So if you think it's something that's interesting, fire it into us um, at wrongtermmemory at gmail.com and uh, we can put that up on the website, can't we, Jack? Yeah, but while we're here, actually, you, you might have heard the wee advert at the beginning of the show. We're launching a Patreon and this will be the promise the last time that we actually speak about it on an episode see if you really really fucking want an episode about something you can go to patreon.com forward slash wrong term memory and if you sign up to the legend tier over there you literally get to pick an episode and we will do we'll do the research we'll do our show we'll put our spin on it and stuff like that but Colin Patreon there's a five six minute video on there explaining what we're doing and why we're doing it but Briefly, briefly sum up the Patreon thing, and like I says, guys, this will be the last time that we sort of speak about it, because if you've got any brains about you, you'll literally just press the skip button at the beginning <laughs> of the episodes to skip past that advert, but um, yeah, 
what, what do they get over there? Four different tiers. Yeah, well, in a nutshell, just to, for a little bit of background, we've now been doing this show for around about 15 months or so. We've got over 100 hours of content in the archives that we've delivered, and we felt it was about time to to do something on the Patriot, uh, Patreon kind of space. Um, our hosting costs have kind of got massive. We're doing this now that we're doing Player 456. Um, it's costing us nearly £600 a year at the moment to just host podcasts. And although we've had a couple of sponsors and stuff over the years, it's costing us money to actually produce this now. We're, we're not getting rich off the back of this. So uh, it's time to get a little bit of support. But rather than just go out with a begging bowl, we have tried to create some tiers and some benefits and some stuff that you're going to get from them. So pop over to the Patreon uh, page, patreon.com forward slash wrong-term memory for a full rundown of them. But you've got options there from as little as £3 a month. It'll get you things like ad-free content. It'll get you early access to episodes. It'll get you bonus content. And it'll even get you able to choose segments on the show. And if, you, if you're if you a certain tier or above, you actually get listed as an executive producer on each pod. So we read out your name at the end of each pod and you'll be on the show notes on the website as well. So loads of little extra stuff for you there. So it's not just throwing money away. You're getting some good stuff back for it. And Jack alluded to the legend tier earlier. Included in that is also some merchandise benefits. So if you commit to that for certain periods of time, we send you gifts like mugs and posters. Hat, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's such a shite, but um, it's got our logo on it and um, it'll keep me accustomed in trainers and stuff like that, so please please sign up. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of that's the story behind it. Um, we're not doing this to get rich, we're actually doing it just to cover costs at the, t- at the moment. Um, if it gets suddenly popular and we start getting rich, then fantastic. But I don't think we'll have to worry about that anytime soon, Jack. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, maybe a live stream or two if we get to a certain amount of patrons and stuff like that. So, most of you will know what Patreon is, so if you feel the, if you feel like you love us, because we love you, motherfuckers, um, yes, go on there. We're not actually launching to the 1st of December, so if you were to sign up today, you, you wouldn't get any content, you'd just be giving us money. So if you want to do that, it's up to you, but the real launch is the 1st of December, and I promise, guys, that's the last time you speak about it. Right, move on. Uh, Tupac uh, Shakur. So, early life, mate, born 1971 in New York City, in Manhattan. Um, he was actually called Lausanne Parish Crooks, and his mother was called Afeni Shakur, and his father was Billy Garland. Uh, both of his parents were active Black Panther Party members in the 1960s. A month before he was born, his mother uh, was tried in New York City, actually, as part of the uh, Panther 21 criminal trial, which is something that I do not know a hell of a lot about, but she was acquitted of over 150 charges. It's kind of like the amount of charges that fucking Tupac Shakur has for shooting people, to be honest. <laughs> like, I am... I, I, I'll hold my hands up. I, never into rap as a youngster, mate. Never got into R&B rap, nothing like that. No NWA, nothing. It just never tickled my fancy. I was happy hardcore, then fucking new metal pish then dance music, then now it's podcast. I don't really listen to music. Were you a, were you a G when you were younger? <laughs> yeah, I was heavy, heavy into it. Um, as a as a white guy kicking about the, the main streets of Clarkston with blonde highlights, <laughs> uh, I, I felt it really spoke to me, Jack. Um, so <laughs> I um, I had the two-pack poster on my bedroom wall. I had the T-shirts that said West Side on them. Um, I got heavy into it. Even when I, even when I was slightly adultish, I remember passing my driving test at seventeen. And one of my first memories of driving is driving around with a couple of different CDs in the car. One of them was Tupac, and the other was Fifty Cent. 
And I remember driving about this clapped out Punto, windows down, sunroof up, and I'm listening to 50 Cent because I'm a motherfucking PIMP. So, yeah, I'm heavy into it. Not so into it now. Obviously, I'm into Kanye. Uh, I like a bit of Drake. Um, got, in, got into quite a bit of Tyler, the creator, recently as well, actually. Um, but it's not my, my main go-to now like it was then. But Tupac will always be somebody that I like because I kind of fell in love with him in the music. Right. Before I had access to Wikipedia, I find out much about him and really know his story. Um, but the music did really appeal to me when I was like 16, 15 sort of thing. Aye, the first um, song that I played in my car, I sort of remember it was Alice DJ, Better Off Alone. Oh, what a tune. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. tune. It was on the, the CD, was the React. Reactor CD. Do you mind all the CDs? The cross on them. Yeah, you will. Uh-huh. You would spy them a mile away, and that was the first song that I ever listened to. Driving about windows down again, thinking I was Billy Big Boys driving about in my sack. So at seventeen, uh, I would imagine the the second song would be something like um, Sash featuring Tina Cousins, Mysterious Times. Well, it's probably fucking that, the same CD, so it would have been a remix of Alice DJ. <laughs> but I know what you mean now. <laughs> but I it was a heavy, shitty, generic dance music for a while when I was 17. But, like, these charges against Athena weren't just, like, uh, being naughty. It was, like, really quite serious shit. It was, like, um, planning bombings and fucking long-range rifle attacks and police stations and education centres and stuff like that. So, like... She was, she was a fucking criminal by the sounds of it. Um, th- by the way, this is the first time I'm reading this, Paul. I know you wrote it for us, and I'm very much obliged. But this is the first time I'm sort of reading a lot of this. So this um, is pretty mad because his de- stepfather, um, Mutulu Shakur, was also on the FBI's ten most wanted list for four years for his panther activities. So he comes from um, that kind of a kind of background, basically. He does, yeah, he does come from the, the sort of Black Panther and the activist sort of background, such from a family point of view. He was renamed um, to Tupac when he was one. Um, he was named after the last Incan ruler, a guy called Tupac Amaru, uh, who was executed in Peru in 1781 after a failed revolt against the Spanish rulers. Um, Tupac's mom explained that she wanted him to have the name of a revolutionary uh, Indian genius people of the world. I wanted him to know that he was part of world culture and not just from a neighbourhood. Um, and I think that's something that he kind of kept with him because he always kind of held those sorts of ideas and he always had ideas above where he was. He always wanted to move on to the next big thing and better himself. And we're going to talk about his albums in a wee while. And you kind of see that through the story of his albums as they go along because they start off heavy ghetto life. Then he starts to get a bit of money in their party albums. And then it's sort of, what the fuck's going on in my life? And then it's a posthumous album. So there's... There's a journey that goes through through the albums, which you can kind of link back right away to this. I was getting bounced about like across the country. I went to Baltimore in 1984, and I never knew this. He's basically a fucking um, stage school kid. He went to school of arts, done a little bit of acting, poetry, jazz, ballet, um, and then he got into the rap scene. And four years later, um, from so 1989 now. He's moved again and he moves to Marin City, five, five miles north of San Francisco. So I never knew that, that he was like a wee guy that went to um, art school, basically. He was super, super talented, Jack, seriously. Right. Some okay. of his art that he did, uh, also he's, he did a lot of acting before he died. He appeared in a number of movies and he was brilliant in them as well. Like If he hadn't died when he died, 
he literally could have went on to big, big things. If he managed to keep himself out of jail and out of trouble, which I think he was trying to start to do by the end of his life, he, he could have been a massive, massive star because he did, he did literally have it all. Kind of like Ice Cube, like being in Tooth Fairy and shit like that. Like. <laughs> yeah, he, he, could have, he, he, was, he had the ability and the likability factor as well to kind of move through different mediums and be successful in all of them. Singing, dancing, art, and now acting as well. He, he, he just was a talented guy. So we moved to San Francisco in 1989, so he starts recording using Tupac Shakuri as his sort of stage name. Uh, begins attending poetry classes of a woman called Lila Steinberg, and soon be- who soon became his manager. I don't know much about the woman, uh, but she did organise a concert for Tupac and his rap group, who were called Strictly Dope. Ever heard any Strictly Dope stuff, mate? I've not heard anything of that. No, Digital Underground was when I first heard his stuff, um, and that wasn't live at the time. I was going back and hearing it. So the early stuff I heard was when he started working with uh, Arthur and Gregory and that with uh, Digital Underground. I think that was in 1990. Um, he did the whole No Gallagher thing, started off as a roadie, and then he started as a dancer, kind of like Bez and Happy Bunty sort of thing. And then he went on on his own and started doing his own stuff under the name Tupac. Because uh, um, he's obviously... If he's a smart guy, which he seems to have been right into stuff like poetry and jazz and stuff like that, he's obviously making the right connections here. And Leela obviously introduced him to this uh, Atron Gregory that you're speaking about there. And he kind of takes off. And then in 1991, he releases his first album, basically, Tupacalypse Now, kind of hinting towards Apocalypse Now, I think, the the film. Yeah. Late 70s, early 80s or something like that, you know? Yeah. And then a lot of, like, big, and in inverted commas, rappers, you know, your Nazis, your Eminem, Game, they basically said, look, Tupac is my inspiration. So he, he was like, was he a trendsetter? Was he, like, just blazing this trail at that age? I've not heard any of this stuff that I don't think anyway, mate. I'm, like, if I heard that, I'd probably go like that. Right, okay, I've heard it, but I couldn't, I couldn't name a song or anything like that. But was he ahead of the game he was because what he did Jack was he he told stories in his, in his songs and it was stories about bigger things than just fuck the police and gangster rap and popping caps and asses and stuff like that particularly this early album um, a lot of it was inspired by different real stuff that was going on either in his life or in the people around him things that were going on in the kind of impoverished black America that he lived in in the ghetto and stuff like that um, it was stuff that your other sort of gangster rappers at the time were glamorising having money and bitches and hoes and all this sort of stuff, whereas he was actually telling it straight what it was actually like being a young black guy in America at that time. And that's why guys like Nas cite him as being an inspiration because he he did something new, fresh, he told the truth on his on his albums and it was something that just wasn't been done before then. Uh, his second album... Uh, we, we've shortened the name of it to Strictly because we're not going to say some of the words that are involved in it, to be perfectly honest with you, but like I think this was quite a commercial ex- success. Like It came in at number 24, not just on the sort of rap albums chart, but on the pop albums chart, on the Billboard 200, basically. From what I'm reading, more of a hardcore album, but he's putting across his social political views, basically, in this, and again, having like, saying more rather than just being, I oh, fuck bitches, I've got a nice motor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's more of his 
his kind of viewpoints on life. He, he's told you in the first album what life is like. Now he's telling you why he thinks it's like that and how it can get better. But there's also you're also starting to see what he's capable of in terms of party music and really some quite commercial stuff, things that like I get around, which had went back to the Digital Underground days by having Shock G and Money B on there. Um, it got as high as number 11 in the pop charts, uh, the Billboard Hot 100, which is massive at the time for somebody of his age doing his sort of music in 1983 to get there was quite an achievement. Um, you've got other songs in that album, Keep Your Head Up, um, which, again, another quite commercial song of his, but really, really good. Um, and it's quite interesting. Um, Paul's pointed this out really well in his article he wrote for us, in that there's a real contrast between the two songs that I mentioned, I Get Around and Keep Your Head Up, which kind of shows the contradictions in his life at this time, because he's always had a lot of respect for women, his mother in particular, because of what a strong woman she was and what a strong influence she was in his life. Um, however, he talks about that in one of the songs. In the other songs, though, he talks about them and calls them hoes. <laughs> so he is still a bit conflicted. He does still fall into a bit of that kind of rapper station where you've got to talk about hoes, um, but he doesn't do it in all the songs. But you can tell he's just a little bit conflicted with his opinions at this point. Do you think people just look too fucking much into lyrics and what people are saying because, like, hoes range with hunters and stuff, does it know? Like, bows, like, throws. Toes, toes. toes. Uh, I got toes. ten toes, bitch. Like, are <laughs> people I got like? More hose. <laughs> I've got, I've got more hose than toes, motherfucker. Like, are, are people just digging too deep into that? Like, is he, does every song need to be some sort of social political commentary, or can he just release a song that fucking rhymes? Yeah, you right? definitely. Yeah, you definitely can. And um, there probably is too much of that going on. Um, I think at the time though, it happened because what he was doing was so different. Um, so people did want to look into it more now you're not really getting deep dives into songs and stuff like that because everything's the same really and the only new music you hear is on TikTok whereas what he was doing was new it was different and it deserved probably a little bit of close examination um, but you are right if you examine a song and every lyric in a song you could probably make it mean anything you want because it's there's so much to a song isn't there you can say it means anything and if you're smart enough with your words you could, you could you know, twist it to say anything you like that's it, we get to his third album, basically 1995, Me Against the World, basically his super duper album, uh, sort of magnum opus basically, ra- always seems to rank amongst the most good and influential rap albums ever, uh, punted nearly a quarter of a million copies in its first week mate, uh, setting a record for like a male rapper basically at the time, the lead single Dear Mama arrived in the February and the most successful single peaked at number nine, basically again in the pop singles chart. Was this what was the first album you listened to? Was it was it this? Do you remember? Um, the first time I listened to it was the fourth one, All Eyes on Me, um, which is my favourite one. Um, I like All Eyes on Me, and I like um, I like uh, Strictly. They were the two main ones for me. And then I actually listened to the Greatest Hits, which came out after that. And then I went back and listened to other individual stuff. Hello friends, Colin here, the looks, the charm and the brains behind Run Term Memory. Just wanted to pop in and interrupt your listening pleasure to let you know about our Patreon and some changes that we've made to it recently. We've now introduced a £1 tier where you get absolutely hee-haw other than the sense of achievement that could only come from supporting two great guys like myself and Jack. We've also reduced the price of the two top tiers by a pound on each of them just because we appreciate 
life is a little bit shit just now and uh, if we can make things a little bit better for people then we will so check us out at patreon.com forward slash wrong term memory and you'll be able to get early access to shows ad free and lots of bonus content Um, but his greatest hits album is very much All Eyes On Me and Strictly album. That's where a lot of the songs come from. Right, okay. So let's talk about All Eyes On Me then. That was 1996. I think it was yeah. the first double album for a, it, for a rap artist. It was, yeah. Um, it was... He had so many songs, Jack. He, I mean, he died with a huge back catalogue of stuff that never got released and it ended up getting released after, after his death. But he had so much stuff done. Um, he was in the middle of a five-album deal and he decided that if he did this double album, it would kill two of them in one go, basically, which is why he released a double-disc album. It was unheard of, because a lot of rappers struggled to get the one album out. To, to, to deliver a double album was, was quite quite well going. Uh, five singles from it came out, um, and they were all super, super popular. This album was him. He's made his money. He's got his album deal. And this was him almost adapting that sort of gangster lifestyle. There wasn't really anything political in this. This was very much, I'm out, I'm partying, I'm drinking Hennessy. Um, on that, I, I have been in a nightclub at the age of 18 and ordered Hennessy because Tupac drinks it. Didn't, even know, what it, didn't even know what it was. Um, drank it straight, it's horrible brandy, and I was sick in the toilet after it. So I, I tried it for Tupac, but it wasn't for me. I've not drank brandy since. That's all tons, like 550... 566,000 albums in its first week, went five times multi-platinum, and the one song that I do know is California Love, and that's from this album, so it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's that's probably, I think, probably his most famous song is Changes now, um, because that just blew up after he died, but yeah, but up until this point, California Love got to number one in the Billboard Hot 100, and it's probably most people's go-to two-pack song, I would have thought, at that time. Yeah, he's getting a lot of sort of critical acclaim here as well. 24th American Music Awards, he wins favourite rap hip-hop artist. So he's starting to get noticed more and more, I suppose. Do you think this is like a a looking back thing that people, like this was the one that you were into as a G walking about Clarkston? Is it after that that people then go back and go, oh, his third album? Is it like a, what do you call it, not a prerequisite, the opposite of that, like... Looking back and going like, oh no, wait, actually it was that album. Um, I th- yeah, I think it probably was because his fourth album would have got more eyes on him and more 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 ears. Probably is a better phrase to use. Who have then went back and discovered how critically acclaimed the third album is, uh, and what people got into it. But I-, I think for me, because I fell in love with the fourth album, that was what I heard first. Uh, that was the one for me, um, and. It does. It became his most popular. You see that, but then what it sold and the awards it won. And naturally, when you discover somebody like that and you find out, hold on, he's got three other albums. You do go back and start listening to it and listen to the older stuff and noticing the differences between it because there is, like I said at the start, there is a big difference between these four albums so far. He did bring out one other album, Jack. Well, he's brought out loads of albums, but his fifth actual album when he was alive and his final studio album was the Don Clemente, uh, the Seven Day Theory, which he actually released under the name Machiavelli. Right. Um, now this was an album was created really really quickly so he created it in 7 days during August of 1996 he wrote the lyrics and recorded them in 3 days and then mixed it in another 4 days um, there was a lot of heart rage in this, um, a lot of contemplation of what's going on in his life and a lot of vendettas going on um, and a lot of people really really liked this 
Um, a guy who worked at Death Row Records is the director of PR, a guy called Papa G. Price. He actually spoke out and said this album was actually meant to be released as an underground album, hence the name Machiavelli. People were supposed to discover it and not really know it was Tupac and see if it took off with this style of music when they didn't know it was him, basically. Um, but because he died and he became such big news, they had to rush it out and let people know it was Tupac because they know they would sell loads of it. And that's what they did. It sounds very, like, mixtapey, you know? Like, a lot of rappers release mixtapes and they're always produced in a short period of time, I think, because production costs money. You know, it costs you money to hire a studio and stuff like that. So it sounds like it's like a, almost like a, a mixtape. But yeah. released by, like, at the time... Was he mass? He was massive at the time, yeah. He was Absolutely the biggest huge. fucking rapper in the world, yeah. So, yeah. like to 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 take that chance and release it under a, a different stage name again, I suppose he was trying something. He was something new. He seems like a bit of a complicated character, but like he was obviously this massively successful rapper. But a fucking it sounds like a massive dickhead, and he might have been trying to get away with it. But lots of criminal cases, including nineteen ninety one. Um, in Oakland, um, he filed um, a $10 million lawsuit against the Oakland Police Department for allegedly brutalising him over jaywalking, and he eventually got $43,000. This kind of leads to a succession of cases where he's obviously tried to sue the police here, but he's involved in lots of, let's be honest, gun crime, including... We'll move on to this guy. I can't say his name. Is it Kid Walker Teal? It's Kaid. Kaid Walker Teal, yeah. Um, so this happens in August of 1992. Um, he's performed outdoors at a festival in Marine City. And about an hour afterwards, he stood signing autographs, posing for photos, and a bit of a fight broke out. And uh, Tupac brought out a legally carried Colt Mustang. So he was allowed to have it. He did have all the licence and paperwork and all that. But he dropped it on the ground and... Um, he then claimed that someone who was with him picked it up and accidentally discharged it um, about 100 yards away from a school, uh, like a school playground. Uh, Kaid uh, was a young lad, age six, who was on his bike, and he was shot in the forehead uh, from this gun. Um, really, really tragically. Police matched the bullet to a .38 calibre pistol registered to Tupac. Um, his stepbrother, a guy called Morris Harding, was arrested for it, but no charges were ever filed because of a lack of witnesses. Um, in 1995, Kaid's mother filed a wrongful death suit against Tupac, which was settled for somewhere, I undisclosed amount, between $300,000 and $500,000. So I think it is safe to say Tupac didn't fire this gun, but it was his fault the gun was there. He didn't care for it, he didn't look after it, he let it fall into the wrong hands, and this tragedy happened. Yeah, that's sad, man, Like to just be playing in the fucking playground and get shot. 100 metres away, I mean, it's quite a distance, so, and I again, I always feel like when things like that are settled out of court, there's something underlying there, basically, and that's without, you might know by now, I'm not a lawyer, but it just always seems like when you settle out of court, it's so you don't get charged, man, like, so you don't get charged for something, you go like, ah, right, I'll give you fucking half a million dollars, shut your mouth, a civil case, is that, there's a difference, I'm sure, between a sort of civil and a civil case is a non-criminal case, so that's like, I'm just unhappy at something you've done to me in the workplace, or something that's not actually breaking any laws, but it's still affected somebody sort of thing, I think. But no, we, do have a lawyer, we do have lawyers that listen, so let us know. 
Ah, you've heard uh, the tapes are listening, let us know. Um, not the younger one, he's not a lawyer, he's just an idiot. Just the older he's one. just a wee daft, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> like, please sign up, to, borrow your dad's credit card and sign up to £20 to teach uh, him a lesson. Aye, right. sign up twice. That's it. In uh, 1993, there was a shooting in Atlanta, basically. Um, Mark Whitwell and Scott Whitwell, two brothers who were both off-duty police officers, were out celebrating uh, with their wives. Um, one of them had passed the state bar examination, becoming a lawyer. Uh, well, just speaking about that, but uh, they were pissed. The officers were crossing the street when a passing car with Shakura in it allegedly nearly struck them. Uh, the two guys started to argue with the occupants. When the second car arrived, the guys ran away. Shakur shot one officer right in the arse and the other in the leg, back and in the stomach. He was charged with the shooting. And, like, again, like, you're getting charged with shooting off-duty police officers. Why are you not in jail for fucking ages? It just kind of blows my mind. But the prosecutors eventually, like, dropped all of the charges against both parties. And both, uh, we're getting to civil suits now. Both uh, brothers filed civil suits against Shakur and Mark. Uh, White Wills was settled out of court again another out of court settlement while his brother um, his $2 million lawsuit resulted in uh, a default judgment entered against the rapper's estate I don't really know what that means but again it seems like he's doing wrong things and then just using the money that he's made to I'm saying that like this is 1993 so he's only released what one, two albums by now? Second album by this point, yeah. And the big thing about this story is that the two police officers were off duty, but they were carrying their guns, they were drunk, and they did fire at the car. And the story is that they did fire first. Right. And Tupac returned fire, basically, okay. which does sort of, it does change things. And you can see why this didn't get, didn't go very far in court, because there's police involved. Um, the shot to the buttocks is famously... Not a shot to kill if you shoot somebody in the buttocks. It's not a murder attempt. Um, so it, it kind of reduces the charge somewhat with that as well. Um, but this kind of didn't go anywhere because of the people involved in it and their actions rather than anything to do with Tupac, really. Right, okay, dokie. See, like I say, I'm, I'm sort of learning as we are speaking here, Colin. So yeah, and I'm also biased, so maybe uh-huh. I, I will see it from Tupac's point of view right. every time. So maybe it's not fully accurate either. Yeah. Accused of a couple of assaults as well, 1993, he allegedly threw a microphone and swung a baseball bat uh, at a rapper, uh, how do you say that, Chauncey Wynn, Chauncey Wynn, of the group MAD at a concert at Michigan State University, he pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor sentence to 30 days in jail, 20 of them suspended and ordered to 35 hours of community service, that's not the only one but, is it? It wasn't no. Um, he was. He did actually. This actually cost him a lot more than ten days in jail. Um, he was supposed to be in the Menace to Society movie uh, that the Hughes brothers were making, uh, and he ended up getting replaced by actor Vontae Sweet uh, after allegedly assaulting one of the film's directors, Alan Hughes. Um, he ended up spending another fifteen days in jail for this one uh, after being found guilty of the assault. And um, the prosecution's evidence, including an MTV Raps interview that he did but he boasted that he'd be on the director of Menace to Society fucking hell man <laughs> that's like this is off piste all this shit that's come out about Marlon Manson recently and Rolling oh, Stone fuck. yeah that's an episode yeah that is an episode by itself <laughs> but the, part of it was it always seems to happen where these guys 
during interviews said, I beat up a guy, I fucking, I used to tie up women and lock them in the room. And they were saying this in interviews, but nobody gave a fuck back then. Nobody cared. Oh, it doesn't, they just thought it was funny and they thought uh, it was cool. All and that Marlon does, he beats yeah. up women and ties them up. <laughs> he, he gets a chamber installed in his house as a punishment chamber and he keeps them in it when they don't do what he wants. Uh, it, was, um, it was a recording studio and it had a soundproof room for one and he would put women in there that were uh, being too mouthy and inverted commas or whatever. Yeah, so yeah, a little bit off a piece, but it seems to happen quite a lot where when you look back at these guys' criminality, they quite openly admit it. Yeah. Because they thought that they obviously think that they are above the law and not going to get caught. And then it's only when you look back. That was in 2002, I want to say. It was an interview. It might have even been with Rolling Stone, which I've got to give Rolling Stone a little bit of kudos for. They actually admitted, look, we've picked this guy up over the years. We've had him on the front cover. We've done interviews with him. We, we've done X, Y, and Z. And they tried to get a hold of the journalist that was, um, in I would say in charge of it, but had written the piece back then and they couldn't get him, which I found a little bit iffy, considering he's a former employee. Like, if you yeah, were chasing something up like that, you think you'd have the contacts to get get a hold of him. So I think he just went, nah, I'm not passing comment on that. Uh, fire in and do what you want. But yeah, many in interviews and then just Billy Big Boss get away with it. And it seems that, Tupac done this as well on MTV raps. Yeah. yeah, and the next two sort of charges he come up against are pretty indefensible, really. Uh, the first one he denies, the second one not so much. Uh, November 1993, uh, him and three other men were charged in New York with sexually assaulting a woman in Tupac's hotel room. A woman called Ayanna Jackson. Um, she alleged that she had consensual oral sex in the hotel room, um, but she returned the next day when Tupac and the other men gang raped her. Um, she was interviewed on the Arsenio Hall show uh, sorry he was interviewed on the Arsenio Hall show and Tupac said that he was really hurt that women could accuse him of taking something from her because it just wasn't something he would do um, on December 1st 1994 he was convicted of first degree sexual abuse but acquitted of associated sodomy and gun charges sake, man. Uh, the following February he was sentenced to 18 months to four and a half years in prison by a judge who decreed an act of brutal violence against a helpless woman and then on to October of that year, pending judicial appeal, he was released from the Clinton Correctional Facility after Shug Knight, the CEO of Death Row Records, and welcome on to him, arranged the paying of a $1.4 billion bond. Um, in April of the following year, he was sentenced to 120 days in jail for violating his release terms by failing to appear for a road cleanup job um, as part of his sort of probationary period. Um, but on June the 8th, his sentence was deferred via appeals pending in other cases. And that was the last of his brushes of the law. So as much as I've defended them so far, Jack, there's some stuff there which is he said, she said stuff. But it's stuff that I is un- indefensible and he's got himself in a situation and a position where something like that can happen and it's not good. He sounds like a prick's prick, to be honest with you. But he, we'll, he does we'll, at this point. Yeah, uh, we'll move on. Even as a rapper noob uh, I even knew about his relationship or bad feud with Biggie Smalls or East Coast v West Coast and that's about all again apart from California Dreaming or California Dreams whatever it's called California Dreaming California Love <laughs> fucking hell damn it who gives you're a fuck mi- you get mixed up with the mamas and papas <laughs> he's a fucking wank he's a fucking <laughs> he's a, he shoots people 
He fucking ties people up. He's a sodomizer. I've got no time for Tupac. Tupac can get in the fucking bin by the sounds of it. Anyway, um, so that was from 93, 94. But, like, were they pally at first, mate? Like, it sounds like they were, because I think Biggie, like, guests on a few of his songs. Yeah, so obviously we know how it, how it went, but at the start they were pretty close. Um, Biggie came through when Tupac was already a big thing. Um, Biggie had done a lot of guest verses and various singles, uh, stuff like Mary J. Blige, What's the 411, uh, back in 1993. And people were buzzing for this guy, Biggie, because this, the little clips people had heard of him, what people were saying about him, people were just waiting and waiting for this debut album. Puff Daddy spent two years mixing that album and the, it really just built anticipation for it. Um, waiting for that album to come out though um, Biggie asked a local drug dealer if he could introduce him to Tupac um, that happened and Biggie and his pals were invited out to Tupac's house and they got involved in some recreational activities um, later visits to LA, Biggie would always stay at Tupac's house uh, the favour was returned later on that year uh, Tupac would go to Brooklyn and hang out with Biggie and his pals um, at this time they would do their own shows and Tupac would often join Biggie on stage and vice versa um, they recorded things like Running From The Police and House Of Pain during this time and they got on so well mate that Biggie actually asked Tupac to manage him at one point but Tupac said that was a stupid move and he would make far more money and be more successful sticking with Puff Daddy um, so the relationship between the two was very very good at the start mate yeah yeah. Say, I don't know much more about it Like Tupac's running about shooting police officers and doing what he's doing, but uh, he kind of gets shot as well, and we've kind of had this conversation before in the sense that so when you hear about somebody getting shot, it's kind of like, well, when it's normal, people don't just get shot a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you need to be fucking kicking about with cunts or shooting guns and shit like that. Yeah, so I've mean, never been shot. Have you been shot? Well, I don't want to speak about it, but no, no I've never been <laughs> shot, but... <laughs> But again, yeah, it's just like mix. It's like fucking all these mixing with the wrong company. And it's kind of like the same thing. November nineteen ninety four, um, he's recording uh, for a mixtape, and these people keep going off. And there's this music manager called uh, Jimmy Henchman, and he reportedly offered to pack seven thousand dollars to stop by Quaid Studios in Times Square that night to record just a single verse for his client, Little Sean. Shakur was a little bit unsure. He's like, ah, right, okay, I'll come along. Uh, Nebora, uh, he arrives and then basically gets robbed cunts beat him up and shoot him, he goes to hospital <laughs> and this is when you, again, like if you got to live this gangster lifestyle so much that you it's almost like showing off so he's been shot, three years after surgery, the doctors say to him here, chill out man like, take some morphine but Tupac decides to check out the hospital and the next day in Manhattan courtroom and he's bandaged all the way sitting in a wheelchair later. <laughs> Sorry, that's made me laugh. Like, that always made... <laughs> oh, I've just got this image, and I know how, like, the one leg up on her, like, sticking out straight. <laughs> oh, here comes poor, poor Tupac, man, all bandaged up, like, like the Terry Butcher thing, <laughs> like, the, the bandage around the head. Anyway, um, so he, <laughs> he rolls into this uh, this courtroom, basically, and receives the jury's verdict in his ongoing criminal trial for the 1993 sexual assault at the hotel. He's convicted three accounts sexual assault, uh, acquitted on six other charges, including the sodomy and gun charges that we spoke about before. He gets a bit pissed off at people, but Colin Troy does, and he start, he's kind of grassing, almost, in interviews, or accusing people. And one yeah. of the accounts is P. Diddy. 
right? Yeah, so there's there's beef going on now at this point. He's trying to figure out exactly who jumped him, why they jumped him, and who paid for them to jump him, basically. So he does an interview with Vibe magazine in 1995, and he accuses Puff Daddy, obviously Sean Coombs, uh, Jimmy Henchman, and Notorious B.I.G., um, amongst others, of being privy to or helping to set up the incident in November 1994 where he was robbed and shot. Uh, Vibe went straight to the people and told them, didn't wait for the magazine to come out, told them all straight away. Um, and these accusations were pretty much what kicked off that East-West Coast rivalry between the two sort of factions. And um, this sort of came up because Sean Coombs and Christopher Wallace, Biggie, were at Quaid Studios at the time. And um, 1990, sorry, in 1995, a few months later, they collaborated with a song called Who Shot Ya? Uh, where the song made no direct reference or didn't name Tupac, but Tupac took it as a mockery of his shooting and said if they're going to do that, then they must be responsible. So he then released a kind of a, a back and forth diss song called <laughs> Hit Em Up, uh, where he targeted w- Wallace and Coombs uh, and their record label Junior Mafia. Um, and at the end of Hit Em Up, he mentions his other rivals, Mob Deep and Chino XL. I'm sure he calls Biggie a fat bastard in it at one point as well. So it just kind of it's just stroking the flames and picking up this rivalry at this point. <laughs> but it's so like it's it's so pathetic at the same time. It's like I'm going to teach this motherfucker, uh, like Mon will go in the recording studio and I'm going to sing a song about this cunt. Yeah. Like who who's like is Eminem not been arguing with Machine Gun Kelly or something recently? And it's so pathetic. There's well, a lot of it in rap. They, oh, they all so they'll rap, they'll do songs with each other. Man, just fucking shoot each other. Oh no, wait. <laughs> right. But yeah, what I mean, it's like I'm going to sing a song about this guy. <laughs> it's like it's a bit homoerotic. I think I don't know. I just find it funny, man. It's just something that I can't quite wrap my head around. We're, we're jumping forward in time, but now to 2008, and Chuck Phillips uh, in the early times reported on this 1994 ambush and shooting. The newspaper had to then retract this article because it was based partially on FBI documents that were forged, just made up. <laughs> like, it's just it's just bizarre because, like, somebody went to the, the LA Times and went, there's this uh, FBI documents. Turned out the guy had already been, like, charged several times with fraud. Yeah. Like, why would you trust a guy like that? It's just bizarre, man. Like, then a couple of years after that, in 2011, um, convicted murderer, a guy called Dexter Isaac. Um, he's jailed up in Brooklyn. He's issued a confession um, that he'd been one of the gunmen who had robbed and shot Tupac at Henchman. I can't take that guy fucking serious. He's called Henchman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he, he's got he's a henchman, but he has henchmen to shoot people for him. Exactly, so, exactly. So this guy, um, Phillips, um, Chuck Phillips, is then named Isaac as one of his own and retracted. It just doesn't, it's just so fucking like, not, not cloak and daggers, but it's just like, oh, here is renowned forger. Right, give the FBI documents, we'll print it in the paper and then having to retract it. It's just all very much, it seems like fucking amateur hour. Like, we live in Scotland and it's like something you would read in, no, even the sun, like, what's even worse papers than that? Like, the fucking. The, the star. The star. It's like, it sounds like yeah. something you'd read in the star, not the fucking LA Times, man. Yeah. It's it's absolute bonkers. Um, it really is. We're going to jump ahead a little bit here. The next major thing that happened in his life was he signed for Death Row Records, but he'll never sign for Death Row Records because 
he was absolutely skint, and that's what you really have to be to get involved with a guy like Suge Knight, famous for bullying artists, stealing money from them. He famously dangled vanilla ice off a balcony until, vanilla ice, him. <laughs> <laughs> until vanilla ice signed over the rights to Ice Ice Baby to him. And as soon as Suge Knight had Tupac, Suge Knight started igniting the war between Puff Daddy, Piggy, East and West Coast, and the rival record label Bad Boy, basically. And it all got pretty, pretty rough and pretty nasty, and that led up to basically um, Tupac's death. Um, Jack, to kind of skip ahead a little bit because we want to talk about his death in a bit more detail, and then talk about some of the theories around it. So I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about Shug Knight. It's Bad Boy Entertainment, is that P Diddy's or Puff yeah. Daddy's used to be called? That that's his. That's his label. Yeah. So he runs that. Like again, I'm learning as we speak here. So you've got P Diddy's Bad Boy and Suge Knight's Death Row, and yeah. they're, they're battling. So Suge Knight, like basically, sets the torch paper and fire underneath that to create. Is, is that just to create buzz and atmosphere and sell more records? Basically, is yeah, that what he's doing? He's just yeah. hyping it up, mate. Yeah, getting clout basically, um, trying to keep people in the press, keep people talking about it because it will sell more records, basically. Aye, so I think Puff Daddy went like a little bit not not Tonto, but he he's pulled Suge Knight up for being a dickhead. Is that right? He's went, yeah. You're a dickhead. And Suge Knight's went, No, you're a dickhead. <laughs> Again, it's just this back and forth that just <laughs> but it does it's serious, man. It does lead to fucking murder basically. You've got Death Jam as well, that are they sort of kicking about, were they sort of involved in this mate do you know the whole I don't know much about Def Jam right. I, don't, I don't think Def Jam are heavy involved did they not try to de-escalate it but like did somebody not jump in and say look fucking chill out a minute this is going to end in murder yeah I think there was mutual friends of both parties at all times trying to do this but I think it just got too much in terms of the, you know how like we're from Glasgow Jack you and I right and I'm, I'm very happy to say that I've never been in a fight in my life right however the best thing that could happen to somebody if you get beef with somebody is you meet them in the street, you punch each other, and then very often you forget about it and it's done at that point. See if Tupac had just walked up and punched Biggie one day, that's probably all be sorted. But instead, they say so much in songs, they talk about their wives, they talk about their mothers, it escalates, escalates, and escalates, and it ends up shooting each other. It's it's just a fucking horrible, dangerous game, isn't it? I should, should, this Shug Knight seems like a bit of a dickhead. He eventually goes to Upton Records with Puff Daddy, um, under its founder, um, Andre Harrell, they're there. They've started this music business together, like, and Shug's turned up, and apparently without sort of paying up time, Shug has obtained the releases of Puff Daddy's prime recruits, a guy called Jod- Jodeci, is that right? Yeah, and, and Mary J. Blige, which was the, that was the big one. So, so is this Shug Knight, is that just what he does, is runs about and threatens people with death if they don't sign over shit to him. Ah, he's, he's Simon Cowell with a gun, basically. Sounds fucking as bizarre, but it gets to 1995 and there's a party for Dupree uh, in Atlanta at the Platinum House nightclub. That sounds like a fucking strip joint, to be fair. <laughs> Platinum House. Um, so there's this sort of, a bad boy circle had entered this heated dispute with Shug and his friend Jai Hussein Jamal Big Jake Robles who just so happens to be a member of the Bloods, and he's a, a bodyguard, basically. That's <laughs> just an odd, bizarre thing as well. Like, you run a multi-million pound record label, and you're that much of a dickhead that you need to fucking get Big Jake 
to take care of you, you know. Anyway, there's eyewitnesses there, including um, a sheriff um, working as a bouncer. So he's obviously not making enough money as a police officer, so he needs to bounce at night. Uh, Puff had heatedly disputed with Shud inside the club, whereas several minutes later outside the club it was Puff's childhood friend and own bodyguard, so he's got a bodyguard as well. Uh, Anthony, Big Wolfie, uh, Jones, aimed a gun at Big Jake and just shot fuck at him. Right, it's shot him dead. Shot him dead, I think that's what I'm saying. Shot fuck. See when I say shot fuck at somebody, that's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> he could have shot fuck at his arse, you never know. So. No, no, he, he shot him all about the the body and he'd have imagined, so this guy was dead. So it's just, that's his, like, it's just not normal life. It's it's not me, and there's so much so much he says and she says that twenty years later, twenty five years later now, that's still on that's still unproven. That case is still not solved, right? Um, because they've all denied all knowledge of it, sort of thing. But again, this is just escalating and escalating the, the kind of beef and the hate between them. There's more songs coming out either way, um, slagging <laughs> off <love> it. <laughs> the whole basically stables of each of the record labels, their families, all sorts of other stuff, and. Um, it just it culminates me to September the seventh, nineteen ninety six. Uh, Tupac's in Vegas um, to celebrate his business partner Tracy Robinson's birthday, and they attend the Bruce Seldon versus Mike Tyson boxing night at the MGM Grand. Um, Suge Knight's with them, um, and afterwards in the lobby, somebody in their group spotted Orlando Baby Lane Anderson, uh, a Southside Compton Crip. All right, so. We've spoken about a blood before, so they've got there's bad blood here between the blood and the crypts, obviously. Okay. Yeah. Um that individual had been accused of him recently been in a shopping mall and tried to sn- snatch uh, Tupac's death row medallion from his neck. Right, okay. So I mean they're fighting over chains at this point, Jack. Um Tupac asked Anderson if he was from the South, as in, Are you part of the Crips? And he punched him in the face, knocking him to the ground. Their entourage jumped in basically and kicked shit out of Anderson. And this fight was all captured in the MGM Grand uh, Video Surveillance. It's all up there on YouTube. You can watch it. Hotel security kind of separated it. Um, after the brawl, Tupac and Suge Knight went off to a club. Um, and they're just doing their thing, mate. Um, he told his girlfriend that he was involved in that brawl at the, at the hotel and told her to be careful, basically, and stay in the vehicle the rest of the night. Um, they went and changed clothes to try and stop people finding them. Mm-hmm. And they got into a big black BMW. Uh, a big sedan and had a part of a larger convoy attached to it to try and keep them kind of safe as well. However, it wasn't enough. Uh, that's it. This is probably the most sort of famous 15 minutes, half an hour in sort of the rap game history, basically, around about 11pm. Uh, Tupac and Knight are stopped in Las Vegas Boulevard from officers uh, from the police department for basically playing their stereo too loudly and not having any licence plates. The plates were then found in the trunk of Suge's car. The party was released a few minutes later without being cited, but at about ten past, um, while they were stopped at a red light at the intersection of East Flamingo Road and Covo Lane in front of the Maximum Hotel, a vehicle occupied by two women pulled up in front of, uh, well, to the left-hand side of Shakur, who was talking through the window of his brand new, again, 1996 BM750 motherfucker sedan. They exchanged a couple of words with these women and invited them to go to Club 622. Five minutes later, there's this white motor, uh, a four-door late Cadillac pulled up beside Suge Knight's. Uh, at the right-hand side, the shooter, seated in the back of the Cadillac, rolled down the window, 
rapidly fired gunshots from a .40 SW Glock 22 at the BMW that Tupac was in. He was hit four times, twice in the chest, once in the arm and once in the thigh. One of the bullets went into his right lung and Shug was hit in the head by a little bit of fragment off of that. So that 15 minutes there, it all really kicks off. I know I've been to Las Vegas, but I didn't get in a taxi. Do you know if, kind of, you get in a taxi as a, like, tourist in Las Vegas? A lot of the taxi drivers will say, uh, do you want to go see where Tupac was shot? And they'll take you up to that corner there. Oh, really? A few guys that have been driven past it, yeah. Um, the A couple of my pals are Selic fans, and there's a big Selic convention out there, right? So they've been to that, and that's what happens as you get took to, to where Tupac gets shot. So, yeah. That 20 minutes basically changed. Did it change that? What, like, what sort of came from this, mate? Do, do you know? Like, what's the sort of script here? I think what the biggest thing that came from it is that regardless of, yeah, regardless of his behaviour and what kind of person he was, they lost one of the probably most inspirational guys in rap at the time, one of the most influential, and a guy that still had a lot to offer. Um, it did sort of calm, I think it did sort of calm things down for a little bit because so much of the beef came from Tupac and Shug Knight and with Tupac being taken out it did sort of shut them up for a while um, but there's always going to be beefs in rap for, I don't know why rap more than any other sort of musical form lends itself to beefs and hate more than any others but this did sort of calm it down a little bit um, but Tupac gets took to hospital anyway we'll skip forward a wee bit so he's in the hospital and he gets heavily sedated and he's placed in a life support machine ultimately put into a <clears throat> pardon me a medically induced coma um, after repeatedly uh, trying to get out of bed. So earlier on we spoke about him sort of releasing himself from hospital. So he seems like a bit of a fighter even though he's been shot four times. He was visited by um, a guy called Jones and he did regain consciousness for a little bit. Um, she played Don McLean's Vincent on the CD player next to his bed and according to Jones she could have moaned uh, and then moved his eyes. But <clears throat> Who, who is Jones, sorry? Is that was his fiancée. So, right. so she played, tells him I love you, yeah. basically, here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he complained that his eyes were swollen and he could feel muc- mucus in them, sort of thing. Right. So he's, he's very so much he's still alive here. Right. Yeah, but he's, he's very much on the way out. I mean, Don McLean Vincent is a, a famous funeral song. Um, there's a reason right, why, okay. she, why, she, why she played that one. Um, That's a bit of a downer, man. If your missus comes to see you and goes like, all right, I'm going to put on this really sad funeral song. Right, here, my eyes are just a bit mucusy. (laughs) Give me a chance. No. (laughs) Um, Should go to hospital the next day, um, but he didn't, that was the 8th of September, but kept quiet until the 11th. He told officers that he heard something, but saw nothing the night of the shooting. Um, A spokesman for the police officer said Knight's statement did nothing to help the investigation. Uh, At the time of Tupac's hospitalisation, um, the police sergeant Kevin Manning said during the week the officer did not receive a whole lot of cooperation from Shakur's entourage. So they basically just closed, they, they closed ranks at this point, Jack, and they, they weren't for letting the police sort this out. They weren't telling them anything about it. Yeah, so about a year after that, there's a guy called Sergeant Kevin Manning who had headed the investigation. He basically tells the son, uh, the Las Vegas son, that is, that basically it's never going to be solved. Um, the case slowly sort of dissipated. There was a few new clues came in and witnesses sort of clammed up, which I don't blame them for, like saying, no, I don't want to tell you what I know because if I tell you what I know, I might get murdered. 
یعنی شب Hello friends, Colin here The looks, the charm and the brains behind Drunk Their Memory Just wanted to pop in and interrupt your listening pleasure to let you know about our Patreon and some changes that we've made to it recently We've now introduced a £1 tier where you get absolutely hee-haw other than the sense of achievement that could only come from supporting two great guys like myself and Jack. We've also reduced the price of the two top tiers uh, by a pound on each of them, just because we appreciate life is a little bit shit just now, and uh, if we can make things a little bit better for people, then we will. So check us out at patreon.com forward slash wrong-term memory, and you'll be able to get early access to shows, ad-free, and lots of bonus content. A lot of shit going on, and it's not, it's not brilliant, but Chuck Williams sort of turns up again in 2002, Colin, so he does this LA, LA Times guy, um, he publishes an article called Who Killed Tupac Shakur, based on a year-long investigation. He's adamant that the shooting was carried out by a Compton gang called the Southside Crips to avenge the beating of one of their members by Tupac a few hours earlier, so again, it's tip for tat, it's making up stuff we don't know and are we ever going to find it? No, I don't think so because obviously this guy Anderson that was attacked in the hotel was the number one suspect sort of thing. The idea is that he got back, organised some backup and followed them in the car and shot them dead. Uh, he himself was killed though two years later in a, I'm doing those um, speech marks with my fingers here, unrelated yeah, gang yeah. shooting. Um, he's the article also implicated East Coast rappers including in Biggie uh, his rival at the time and several other New York City criminals um, now obviously Jack this then led to Biggie being shot further down the line um, obviously they can't blame that one on Tupac because Tupac was already dead but it was a it was the pendulum effect sort of thing this was still people trying to get retribution from West Side against the East Side and it ended up with not just Tupac losing his life mate but also Notorious B.I.G. who who liked Tupac would have went on to massive, massive bigger things. Yeah, and then just something that's a little bit strange. So ten years ago in two thousand and eleven, there's an Israeli newspaper called Haaretz, and it reported that the FBI released documents as a result of the Freedom of Information Act request that they'd put in, revealing its investigation of the Jewish Defence League for extorting protection money. Munchy, <laughs> that that that's me. Like I've got a, I'm absolutely starving, mate. To be perfectly honest with you, but they're wanting Munchy money, um, protection money, um, from Shakur and other rappers after making death threats against them. So this Jewish Defence League have been accused of this. Two thousand seventeen, Knight claimed that it might have, he might have been a target of that attack that killed Tupac. Basically, arguing that it was a hitting him as a stage coup to seize control of death row records. So Suge Knight, again, wanting to be front and centre. And via this Freedom of Information Act, the FBI released documents related to its investigation, which described an extortion, basically, this scheme from the Jewish Defence League. This is just bizarre, mate. Like, I don't... I never knew anything about this until I read it 35 seconds ago. Bizarre as fuck, no? It's it's, it's mad, yeah. It just kind of shows, like how many people had a, had their, their teeth into this and how many dodgy things were going on and how many people were involved in it. This wasn't just a guy in the East Coast who didn't like a guy in the West Coast. It just 
it grew sort of arms and legs and became such a big thing that FBI are releasing documents like 15 years later and stuff like that. It's it's crazy. And I dare say, mate, there's far so, so much of it that still hasn't come out. Yeah. I probably won't at this point. Um, but, I mean, the, the, the sad thing is, is that the two main guys in the story, Tupac and Biggie, both died young men with whole lives ahead of them, basically, because, let's be honest, their own stupid actions. It's not the only theory, conspiracy theory, surrounding Tupac. There's five or six of them that are reasonably, well, I say reasonably interesting. The first main one that always pops into the consciousness as somebody faking their own death. Elvis has been accused accused in the birth of commas of it, but there is a conspiracy theory that basically Tupac faked his own death. Again, what 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 why would you why would you fake your own death unless you were in all sorts of debt or whatever? Or I, I just don't particularly understand why that would it always seems to happen and like yeah. oh they faked there's, it. There's there's a there's a train of thought that Tupac was actually really done at this point with the whole celebrity lifestyle, right. the being in the public eye and all the shit and the hate that was coming and stuff like that. I mentioned that he released that album earlier under the name Machiavelli. Uh-huh. Um, now, that came from the political political philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli, right. um, who basically did a treaty uh, called The Art of War, which was known at the time as being about advocating the use of fakings one death in order to manipulate an enemy. So a lot of this sort of faking his own death stuff comes from the link to the name Machiavelli, which was the album that was recorded just before he died. Um, the Also the fact that the album sleeve um, did have the phrase hidden in the artwork, Exit Tupac, Enter Machiavelli. Um, and the album sort of depicted him as a sort of Jesus Christ-like figure, um, rising from the dead sort of thing. So there's all these sort of little clues and little tidbits that have been kind of fed together by various people to give the idea that He's not dead, and it was all planned. But I, I don't think that's true. Yeah, uh, like similar to that is that he's actually just staying in Cuba at the moment. He was a little bit, like you mentioned, there a little bit weary of the bloodshed and decided to fuck off to Cuba again. Just who makes this stuff up, man? Like who sits in the and decides that this is like he gets shot four times and he's dead? Like, <laughs> he, he's not fucking kicking about in Cuba. There was some really good photoshops online a couple of years ago of him in Cuba sitting and drinking cocktails with Rihanna <laughs> at 50 cent. Um, but yeah, he's probably not in Cuba either. Um, there's obviously the usual one as well, that he's been held by the government as a witness. Um, the CIA have refused this. Um, they actually tweeted from the CIA account in July 2014, no, we don't know where Tupac is. Um, because so many people had been messaging them and tweeting them on the, on the anniversary of his death saying, going to just release Tupac and tell him to tell us he's alive. That's mad. Like, you mentioned earlier that he was he was meant to be in menace to society, so he was like becoming quite a known and quite a good actor and Suge Knight was not happy with this and he he was unhappy that he told a rumour that Tupac was going to leave Death Row Records. So well, there's a double album thing again, Jack, to so get out of that deal quicker. His death. On you go. Yeah. Sorry, I'm saying that's the double album thing again to get out right. of that quicker. Um, that's kind of another thing that led people to believe that and Suge Knight to believe it. Right, okay, so if it wasn't a Suge Knight, it was Biggie that called for his death? Was it him that masterminded that? That's another theory. Uh, yeah, their feud um, basically was the most storied in hip-hop history. And if you'd believe that, then this guy, Anderson guy, just became the fall guy, basically, for 
the BIG wanting to get rid of Tupac because of the beef between them. So there's that. Did Biggie kill Tupac? Certainly not directly, but did he plan it? Was he involved in it? Who knows? Tupac kind of knew that he was a wanted man in inverted commas, so he used to like rip about in a bulletproof vest. But this night, he wasn't aware, man. Like he was obsessed with protecting himself, basically. Um, after getting shot in nineteen ninety four, but he wasn't wearing a bulletproof vest this night. So again, sort of leads to uh, internet conspiracy theorists to think, or oh, why was he nowhere that he's obviously been set up by someone? Was he, 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 somebody must have ordered that someday. Like it's not just a a chance meeting that. Oh, they're two pack. I'm going to shoot fuck at him. I've just so happened to have this gun in the back of the motor. What's your thought, mate? Like, have you got any thought on who who went to murder him? I I think that obviously the, the the guy Anderson that got beat up in the in the hotel but at the fight, he has chased after him. He has shot him. It's him that's actually pulled the gun. Um, do I think he's potentially had a phone call from somebody quite high up in the east side, whether it be Biggie, whether it be um, Puff Daddy? Listen, I've just been battered by Tupac. Do you want me to chase him right away? And they've said, yeah, take him out. And he's been obviously like their fall guy. I think that's the most obvious answer to this. And that the whole night wasn't planned, but the bodyguard getting beaten up by them and wanting revenge just basically put something into motion that probably would have happened further down the line had it not happened that night. Um, There's a bit of a post-death, a shady cremation, basically. So, So what's happening with this, calling this... This is probably the biggest story, Jack, in terms of why people believe that he's not dead or believe in foul play here, because he was cremated the day after he shooting, basically. As soon as he died, he was shot in a private ceremony that cost Shug Knight $3 million to get put together so quickly. Right. Um, the Basically, people that carried out the cremation listed Tupac as being six foot tall and weighing 215 pounds. But he was well known, and even his driving's license identified him as five foot ten and one hundred and sixty-eight pounds. The guy that did the cremation then retired and vanished, and has never been heard from since. <laughs> um, there was a planned memorial for Tupac planned a little couple of days later, which the press were banned from, and at the last minute that was cancelled by Suge Knight as well. Um, so up until now, Suge Knight and that now vanished cremation guy is the only people on this planet that saw Tupac's dead body. And then just to wrap it up, we're obviously doing Player 4, 5, 6, a Squid Game podcast, and I'm pretty into my numbers, but there's a thing called the Theory of Sevens um, surrounding Tupac's death, basically. So fans have long cited the number sevens frequency. You can make numbers say anything amongst the details of the murder as evidence, and in inverted commas, of something. They point out that Tupac was shot on the 7th of September. <laughs> he was aged 25, so 2 plus 5 equals 7. Uh, he officially died at 4.03pm. 4 plus 0 plus 3 equals 7. And his birthday was the 16th of June. 1 plus 6. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> what a lot of shit, man. Oh, you, you usually bum these numbers up. You usually love them. But yeah, you're not having this one. That's fair enough. It is a I bit know it, like, I, I bum them up when it's part of a, a written TV series that definitely leans on numerology as a, a writing tool. 
not when fucking four plus zero plus three <laughs> equals seven and one plus six equals seven. What a lot of shit, man. That <laughs> was quite interesting, um, Paul. Like, far too long. <laughs> <laughs> might have helped if you'd read it first. That might have helped you kind of yeah, take it in. But I listen, Paul, thank you for putting that together for us. Um, I consider myself quite a big two-pack fan, but I still learn things from it. Um, I am no expert. I've probably said things that aren't fully accurate, so apologies if I've upset any bigger two-pack fans than me today with this one. But I enjoyed it. It's two-pack. It was something a little bit different, just kind of talking through it and giving our own thoughts on it. So I enjoyed that, Jack. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Like I said, we, we probably muddled. <laughs> I didn't uh-huh. mean that in that sense, but we probably butchered. Uh, parts of that story there. Who cares? Um, no me. Um, I enjoyed sort of learning about Shug, P. Diddy and fucking all sorts of cunts shooting each other. So I think we'll wrap it up there, Colin. Yeah, yeah. We went over that golden hour that we like to try and stick yeah. under. So yeah, we'll call it, a, call it a day there. Thank you for listening, folks. Um, check out the thing we said we're not going to mention. And thanks for listening. Browse only the best pods in the best network. Quite the thing media.com. <laughs>